Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Firm Discussions. Today, I'm joined by Ryan and Brett of Chit Chat Money, and we're going to discuss Nelnet. Do you guys want to start by maybe telling listeners a little about yourselves and Chit Chat Money? Sure. I'll, sure. Uh, I'll kick things off. Yeah. yeah. The, I guess, yeah, I'm Brett. Uh, and then the other guy here is Ryan. Uh, we do a podcast called Chit Chat Money. And it's another investing focused show. We do separate, a couple of different styles of episodes where we try to do one where it's, we call it a uh, ingest, a not so deep dive, just because uh, calling stuff a deep dive is very popular. So it's basically a every Tuesday, stuff like that, where we go through an individual stock, try to analyze it, kind of give a first look after researching it for a week. And we also interview people and then do a live show sort of similar to how some of the people do over here where it's just us two we get various investing topics from the week we have some comments from other people and we go for an hour and we call it the investing power hour and that's it yeah we uh, have it i guess wherever you get your podcasts and yeah just a lot of investing discussions and that's why you know it's perfect to come on here because we just love talking about stocks and you guys also have your arch capital fund and do sort of like specific arch capital episodes, don't you? Is that once once a month you do those? Yeah, it's really so. At the end of our each month, we try to do a theme for our not so deep dives. So maybe it's this this month it's discount retailers. So we've looked at Dollar General, we've looked at uh, Dollar Tree. We're going to look at Dollarama this week, and then we try to we've tried to wrap it up each month with an arch capital episode because it's a little more it's typically something we know a little better and we try to tie it to the theme but it doesn't always work out that way because we only have what 12 companies in the portfolio now so you know eventually you run out of (laughs) shows to do there so um we try to update our thing and sometimes it's a why we don't own something why we like the business but we don't own it why we own a certain particular stock but it's always based that one show a month is based around the, our actual arch capital portfolio. And it's usually a little bit of a deeper look at the business and something we've been following for a while. And you guys have done an episode on Nelnet. Am I right in saying? Yeah, so that's correct. Uh, yeah. If anyone after this episode wants any more details, they can head over to our podcast. Excellent. Yeah. And and um, and it is a, a, a holding in your fund as well, right? That is correct. Excellent. So maybe let's let's just move on then to start talking about the company. And should, do you want guys want to start maybe with a bit of a an overview of the company for anyone who's not heard of it? I hadn't heard of it before you guys. Before I, I have actually listened to your to your episode on it, but before I listened to that, I hadn't heard of it. And um, so yeah, it'd be good to just hear some an overview business segments where they're operating, all the rest of it. Yeah, so maybe I can hit the student loans or and then Ryan, you can hit the stuff that they're because they they really have two parts of it. It's it's a bit of a conglomerate, so it's hard to describe what they do in a couple sentences. So maybe just for context for the listeners or viewers, the company started as a student loan originator. Uh, we'll maybe talk about the history of that in a bit, but they originated student loans, just financing them, you know, earning interest income on that and getting the principal repaid like a typical lender. And then on top of that, they also do student loan servicing which is an interesting segment. Uh, it's a bit, as we'll maybe talk about, politically charged, where they have to win contracts from the Department of Education. But that business does around, well, it's just under $100 million in operating income each year. So that's a different one. It's, a, it's part of the student loan business, but it's not the financing portion. So that's two separate segments. And then they don't originate, as we may talk about on another topic, uh, the student loans anymore. They haven't since I believe 2011, it might've been 2010. So they have all these student loans and they're generating the cash from that. And then they're investing in a lot of other things in a sort of, they have some focuses, which would be the education space, uh, kind of the consumer banking space. But I'll let Ryan maybe talk about that, what they're trying to take all the cash from the student loans and reinvest into. Yeah, it's, it might sound a little messy just because there's a lot of different businesses under their umbrella. Uh, I would say probably Brett mentioned the loan servicing segment. And I, I guess to kind of paint a little more context around that, that is an operating business. They wholly own it. And it's different 
from the loan originating. And so loan servicing, for people that don't know, it's it, there's a layer of work being done under the hood between the borrower and the lender that tends to go unnoticed. So this includes the actual distribution and collection of money, maintaining financial records, a kind of a central dashboard for the borrowers to interface with. And so Nelnet, that's how a lot of people know Nelnet. Uh, and sometimes it actually gets kind of a bad rap because they're like people just associate Nelnet with their student loans, and that's a sore spot for a lot of people. So it, it kind of gets a bad rap, but that's a loan servicing segment. It has had a little bit of a difficult time lately with the pause on student loan uh, repayments, but it, it, they're still profitable in that segment, even with the forbearance period. The second one that I think is probably worth calling out is Nelnet Business Services. That's the other part that's frustrating is they come up with the most vague names of all time. Um, but this is basically, edu- it's I think it's 12 or 13 different businesses now uh, that are all related to the education software space. So um, it's a suite of different software and payments tools for basically K through 12 and even higher education institutions pretty much all throughout the US. And so the biggest one or the most important segment within this education software is FACTS. That's F-A-C-T-S, which serves 11,000 schools in the K through 12 private and faith-based markets. And so it, it to kind of paint a picture on what this software actually is, think like if you're a principal or you're working in the office at one of these elementary schools, there's, let's say it's a private school, you got tuition management, you've got enrollment processes, there's education development programs in there. There's, and then there's just like general administration workflows. So that's really probably one of the most profitable businesses they have under their umbrella. So last year, the segment did $244 million in revenue. It was at $74 million in operating income, but we think it's probably going to get closer to $100 million in the not too distant future. Sorry, that was the facts segment. I'm talking about NBS did more than $400 million in revenue in 2022 on $74 million in operating income. Sorry, kind of confused that, but I know I'm going through a lot of numbers here. Those are the two, unless I'm wrong here, Brett, those are the two biggest operating businesses, the loan servicing and the education software. Do you want to talk about some of the others? Yeah. So those are the ones that are longer standing than probably been around for, I would say, at least 10 years. But then there's some newer things as well. They just got a bank charter a couple of years back. They're starting a bank there, which, which we can talk about, but it's a very small part of the business today. But growing quickly, they're investing in these solar um, energy financing unit, which is a bit opaque. And then they also have a lot of outside stakes in, they've taken a lot of cash flow and kind of acted like investors. Uh, we don't like to use the term often of the Buffett-esque style Berkshire Hathaway capital allocator stuff, but people do like to call this a baby Berkshire. doesn't guarantee that's going to be a good investment. And I'm sure they don't like the comparison as well, but it's similar where they don't have a mandate of what they're going to do. They're just trying to create value for shareholders. So they've invested in Real estate stuff, venture capital, and a few other things. What I what I'm missing? Oh, and they have one more thing that's important: is a big stake in a rural fiber to the home and cable internet provider called Allo Communications, and that's a sizable stake. We can talk about how that's artificially depressing their earnings, but maybe that's something for a a follow up or another topic. But I think that covers it. Unless what, there's something. One else. more one more thing to mention, and this is probably the one that kind of excites me the most is they have a 20% stake in Huddle, which for those that don't know Huddle, it is the basically go-to platform for um, like sports film and highlights. So, um, you know, if you're a high, it started in kind of the high school US football uh, industry, which was, is a huge market in the US. And basically, that's where all the teams, all the schools would upload their footage from all their games, their practices, and you kind of watch film, and then you can piece together your highlights. And then that's where they started, but they started acquiring some other ones as well. So let me make sure I get these right. So crossover, this was for college basketball. They ended up uh, acquiring that. Real track systems, this was developed in association with FC Barcelona's Innovation Hub. It's a real track GPA, GPS sensor data and video performance 
to it's really popular in kind of the broader world of soccer um, or football, as most people say. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other ones, but right now it's they've invested over the years more than a hundred million dollars into Huddle. This feels like probably it's hard to say when they will go public, but if it does, I think this could be worth multiples of what they've invested here. And honestly, like a decent chunk of the current market cap, they really try to keep their equity values or the the values that they can control in terms of like, they could mark some of these things up if they wanted to, they could just go get another co-investor and do it at probably a, a ludicrous multiple and mark up their book. But they really choose to run this thing conservatively and kind of mark down some of the the value of their private investments. And I think Huddle's one of those. Okay. I've um maybe we can wind back a little bit. Is quite a lot of business segments there. I've got um perhaps some questions for the on the student loan side of things. Um so the the servicing uh, division um you mentioned about i mean maybe you could just give some context for listeners that aren't tuned into the us sort of student loan system what what those what those issues were and as i mean when i had a look at the uh, the annual letter from 20 from from last year they were talking about um being told to get everything ready or something like that for january and then or february when it was supposed to thing and they hired a load of new people uh, something some really substantial number of new new staff they had to bring on and train up and then they were told that it was being postponed again for another six months or something is is that uh, is that right and and how how is this impacting them and how are they how are they managing to to cope with with the, under those conditions yeah so the bad news is the basically since the pandemic moratorium for anyone that's outside of the US uh, with the giant student loan market that it goes on here for, for colleges or and universities, they basically paused that or all these sort of details, which aren't too relevant to Nellan. But the bad news is that, you know, people were stopped paying their loans. And when they weren't, then Nelnet's student service, student loan servicing di- division became much smaller. But the good news is it looks like that's going away. And hopefully that division will start earning much more in profits in the over the next few years as they have over the past few. So yeah, they, there was multiple stops. I don't remember the exact timeline where they, uh, if you looked at the varying administrations that were in uh, power, they kept saying, okay, we're going to do it, say in October of this year, we're going to start student loan payments again. And then they kind of pushed the can down the road three or four times. So Nelna had to kind of flip flop back and forth and say, okay, we're going to bring on all these associates that help with the student loan servicing business, kind of the, you know, almost the labor aspect of it, people helping with customer support, stuff like that. And then they had to lay them off again. And now they're finally bringing them back. But it looks like we're officially done because we have started student loan payments again, and the market is generally normalizing. And what's great is that they're one of the few companies that do student loan servicing. And as the Basically, you know, they'll, it'll grow along with probably at a faster rate than GDP plus inflation. And it should be able to grow along with that as this basically the number of loans that they're servicing grows, their revenue should grow along with it. And the, the only downside is that the government kind of decides what, since they're the only customer, they can decide what price they're going to charge, right, for some of this stuff. So that's a bit of a risk here. But generally, they've been able to make a a solid profit with this business. And as, again, student loan payments restart, we should see this business that has been essentially, I mean, it was what was great and what made us optimistic is that the segment has been profitable every year since 2016, but it hasn't really grown. So we think once the student loan payments restart, we should see a nice bump here and that should help their earnings power. Yeah. The the other thing maybe worth mentioning and I'm not sure how it how the student lending markets work abroad, but in the U.S., a lot of student loans are written under. I think it's called the Federal Family Education Loan Program (FFELP), and these used to be private loans. Like private institutions could write them, could originate them, and it was backed by the federal government. Uh, 
I think 98% of the principal was backed and 97% of the interest. And it was kind of a cheat code, but that's a nice yeah. business to be in, which Nelnet was in. And it was, and that's kind of where they got the start until 2008, the federal government took that program in house. So all the loans are now under that program are originated by the federal government. And so the federal government is the largest customer for this loan servicing segment by far. I think it's like 70% uh, of the revenue in the loan servicing division comes from the federal government. And so when the federal government says you better staff up because we're going to start um, having the students repay their loans, you kind of have to follow suit. And so they've been just like toying with Nelnet in a way, but now they are officially being repaid and they seem to be in a better position. And I'll say, Brett kind of mentioned it, but last year, worst possible environment for Nelnet's loan servicing division, right? You, you're overstaffed. You you don't know how many people are going to be repaying their loans and the federal government's not helping you. And they generated $65 million in operating income on $500 million in revenue. So they're, they're still a solid business. And they, they, if you just read their commentary, you'd think, wow, this business is in trouble, but it, it's still generating consistent earnings that they're redeploying elsewhere. So that explains then why they're having to wind down that that book, they basically can't renew the FFLELP loans um, because it's it's now something that's entirely issued by the government, effectively. That's correct. Yeah. So they can't originate any new loans. But as I think will maybe lead into another question people may have, they still have the loans on the balance sheet because I forget what was the last year was, just say 2010 time period. We don't need the exact time period, but student loans last a long time. And they still have a lot of these loans on the balance sheet, over $10 billion, but it's winding down fairly quickly each year. Uh, but they have a lot of cash coming in from this that they're going to reinvest in all the things that we've mentioned. So if I look at a chart here, and it does change, these are estimates, and it can change based on interest rates, which we can talk about, uh, which has been a bit of a headwind for them and can be a bit of a headwind if there's a lot of volatility there. And then also the timing of when people repay stuff, which again, Hurt them over the last few years. So this is just an estimate, but they believe they'll get about 1.4 billion from now until 2036, with the majority coming over the next few years. They have approximately 200 million coming in the rest of 2023, and then also in 2024 and 2025. And then it kind of goes down to under 100 million dollars from there on out. But that's coming in. We don't think it's guaranteed that it's going to be that exact number because, again, there are some things on the edges like interest rates and stuff that can hurt them. But they have this really steady cash flow that's coming in and they're reinvesting again into the education payment companies that they're acquiring and investing in. Uh, student loan servicing, maybe not as much, but then all the other stuff, which maybe we can talk about later. And they are still doing other forms of lending, like there's still like private student loans as well, and then other sort of consumer loans. That's still open. that's right. Yeah. Do we want to maybe talk about the bank now? Uh, yeah, that could be yeah, good. Might, might be a good segue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe Ryan, you want to lead with this one? Yeah, I think you've kind of followed it a little closer, at least this segment. But basically, they had cash of their own that they used to fund the bank initially and start writing some loans. They got the bank chart, I want to say two years ago, maybe three now. And it's been those private student loans. It's an area where they have a lot of experience. Uh, they've been doing this really since, I want to say, the 80s. Um, and they kind of bridged the servicing and the originating in the early 2000s. But they, they, they've been in the student loan market, whether it's servicing or originating for a long time. They have a lot of experience, so they know how to do so profitably. Um, still a relatively small segment of the business. In terms of other areas where they lend, I think they've done some originating for the renewables business or the solar business that they have. Am I missing any other loans? Well, I, I don't think, yeah. So the, the reason I believe they started the bank and it was pretty good timing that they got the charter approval, which I think was in late 2020, but they haven't really started up doing it. You know, if you get the bank chart, you got to really set things up. And Ryan mentioned they funded it themselves from the Nell Knight parent company, but they wanted to replace these this interest income that was coming in. That, as I mentioned, 
it's going to be solid over the next couple of years, but it's really going to go away. And that was their cash cow. So if you look at their, I just pulled up Nelnet Bank's website as you guys were talking. They offer from a borrowing perspective, private student loans. Like Ryan mentioned, they talked about that. That's the bread and butter, student loan refinancing, and then home improvement loans, as well as personal loans. So it's a lot of personal loans that they're going after here. And then from a saving perspective, they offer you know, high yield savings account for businesses and consumer high yield savings account savings accounts. It's a very standard bank and it's going to be a digital only bank. And we don't, there's a lot of uncertainty here because we don't know exactly how big this business is going to be. They don't really give a game plan here, but it's growing fairly quickly. If we look at their net interest income after loan losses, 2021, it was about 5 million. So pretty small, but it's already shot up in 2022 to in between 10 and 15 million. I forget what the exact number was, say about 12 and a half. I don't have, I just have it on a chart here. So we think it's growing fairly quickly here. It can hopefully over the long term replace some of the assets that are running off uh, from that old, I forget the exact term, the exact acronym, FFELP loans. And do you know what sort of like um, percentage of equity they have uh, versus the deposit basis? I do not have that in front of me, so no. Well, I guess it in the early stages it'll be quite significant when it's while they while they're trying to build up the deposit base, wouldn't it? But uh, right, yeah, I can maybe try to pull up the deposits, but I believe it's in the could be like I, I think it's like seven hundred million, but maybe uh, okay. I could try to look it up while we're talking. Yeah, no, they funded no. a lot of they funded a big chunk of it with cash themselves, at least initially. Yeah. Yeah, from from the parent company, yeah, d- deposited money at the bank. Uh, it is according to as of June thirtieth, twenty twenty three, on the balance sheet, bank deposits uh liabilities of seven hundred thirty one million. So fairly small right now, but hopefully over time they can grow okay. that deposit base. Yeah, and you guys also mentioned um, about the solar business, and I, my understanding from just a quick look at their ten um, k and stuff was that uh quite a lot of this right now is coming from they're, they're benefiting from a tax credit um scheme with that so I, I mean how much of the overall sort of viability of that business is dependent on those tax credits do you think um is it is it something that will how how self-sustainable is is the business go how profitable would the business be with if that regime you know tax credit regime were to end Right, you want to? <laughs> well, oh, yeah. Sorry, I thought Ryan, Ryan was talking, but uh, you might have been on, on mute there. I could maybe talk about. It. So I think they get like a thirty percent tax credit if they finance these. So I mean, that's that's very attractive, and I'm not sure how much of the flow of investor demand because they do some outside money there, and they also, or maybe the demand from just building these projects in general would go away if there wasn't these tax incentives but given the i forget exactly what bill it was but let's just say it was the infrastructure bill maybe I forget the exact name but the the united states government just passed these giant bills for these green energy projects and at least Inf- inflation reduction for, act inflation reduction act yeah and at least for the next decade or so it seems like that there's going to be a boatload of money flowing into all these projects financed by the government. I believe we just saw the other day like $7 billion going into a hydrogen funds across uh, hydrogen-powered stuff across the country, which is a way earlier stage thing. So I, I think it's, yes, the tax credits are very helpful here, uh, but it it doesn't change the fact that the ones that they're doing are already going to be profitable. And these are very long-lived assets. I think if it's another way that they're taking the old, uh, the interest in the principal paid back on the old student loans they owned and investing into other things that are going to be two to three decade assets that are going to generate a lot of cash flow and in a tax advantage manner. So it's not bad that they own other businesses that are generating a profit and they can offset their earnings there. So yeah, I, th- I don't think it's a bad business. And if the tax credits somehow went away, they may pivot. But the good thing is that this business isn't entirely reliant on the solar energy part, and they kind of invest where they see the best returns. Yeah, the other thing worth mentioning here is that they they started, and I'll say, 
some of these smaller businesses. So renewables is relatively small. Uh, the, the bank is relatively small, just in terms of in comparison to Nelnet's other operating divisions. Uh, it's hard to get context around these divisions until management gives it to you. So they, you can kind of try to probe and look online and see what's going on, but it's not always super clear. They tend to be pretty opaque. Um, but with Nelnet Renewables, they started financing these things. So they were co-investors on a lot of projects. They would get the cash flow from those projects plus those tax credits that Brett was mentioning. But last year, I think within the last year, they acquired a, a business called GRNE Solar, which was it's a contracting company that builds solar projects for other people. And now they've basically built this whole division where it's instead of just financing solar projects, they also have the building segment of it as well. Remains to be seen kind of what synergies they can draw from there, but they have this Nelnet Renewable Services division, which it seems like they're going to continue to allocate a lot of capital towards. And it kind of looks like a greenfield opportunity for them where they can kind of, they've got the cash flow to keep investing. And this is a wide open space for them to just hopefully keep pouring capital into. Cool. Yeah. And I suppose the, um, the tax credits they're being given, it really is only helping with the initial installation and then the revenues they get from then on. It wouldn't be like they'd lose out for what they've already built. It would just be that maybe some of the incentive to build more and expand the business would, would disappear. There, yeah. Correct. But the thing is, they don't do conference calls. They don't break out a lot of stuff and do a specific KPIs for these segments. So we are guessing a bit. And I think our main thing with kind of trying to predict the economics of these businesses is that we trust management. We trust the track record of growing book value. And we have to... It, you can't be an analyst with this company and say, all right, I'm going to really measure out to the penny what contribution mm -hmm. the solar division is going to have to the earnings per share, which it actually probably hurts it uh, in the short run, which is depressing their earnings per share because of the, the write-off to the earnings power. But you really have to trust them. Okay. Like they have a good track record of this stuff and they're very, I would say conservative when they find a good opportunity or for looking for a hurdle rate. And they see the, if you, it should almost be a good thing that they're putting so much money into this thing, because that means they're seeing, okay, we can get a good return on all this invested capital. Okay. And, um, I guess along the similar lines, because they've got all of these sort of private investments that um, you haven't got a great deal of visibility on, um, and you're just you're getting their uh, book value valuations and what have you. But there's, I wonder if the um, the rising interest rates we've had in the in the last few years, do you think they'll have had any? impact on the these sort of the values of some of these private investments is it, i mean have they said anything along these lines that they think some of the devalued or do you think that they were just recognizing such a low value for a lot of them that it's kind of mitigated that maybe just some of the potential upside they would have had as has gone there if they were to make them public for instance so the, in terms of the interest rate impact it kind of it's all over the board for now that in some ways where so on the loan book they get uh, on the on the legacy loans so the the education loans they wrote a while back or they acquired from other originators they get a fixed interest payment on it and it's pretty low but they've hedged it out with a bunch of derivatives where they get sort of this though it's not precise they get this tiny spread typically i think it's like right around one yeah. percent slightly higher an important note is there that they finance some of it with variable excuse me variable interest rate loans so they have the fixed amount of you know interest rate coming in but then the variable loans can change rapidly and as we saw the last two years it, you know it went up quite a bit and it's had i guess a small impact where it's just tightened the spread a little bit and forced them to have i think it was like a one-time kind of small impairment on their loan book two quarters ago but it wasn't that big so a lot of it's pretty fixed they know the kind of cash flow they're going to get 
Um, the other side of that, though, is they opened the bank in 2020, 2021, maybe, and they didn't have all these private student loans at three or 4% and then have rates rise on them. And all of a sudden, they're underwater on those. Instead, they've been able to originate these loans as the rates have gone up. So they kind of already had a pretty good yield on their earning assets. Um, and I think that's going to be an advantage over other banks because it'll hopefully allow them to offer higher deposit rates than a lot of these traditional uh banks that had all these loans that are, you know, three or four percent yielding and it's, you know, they can't offer higher consumer deposits. So or higher rates on consumer deposits. So uh, it's kind of had that mixed impact. I don't I would say it's not as big of a deal as people would think it is looking at a business where it's like purely financials, they've done a really good job of mitigating the risk. Yeah. And they're always hedging out that interest rate risk because they talk about the, they're pretty clear in all their filings on how it works, where yes, there is interest rate risk when we do these uh, asset back securitizations is what they call it. So they always have the hedges in place and we saw the most aggressive interest rate rise in history and they've been okay. So as long as interest rates don't go from five to 10% again, that we shouldn't see that headwind. And if they're uh, flat to falling, it actually will be a benefit for the cash flow coming in from that original, you know, student loan origination book. But that'll become, as we mentioned, a smaller and smaller portion of this business over time. It could also hurt them maybe from the real estate investments and the venture capital stuff, but they don't really mark this stuff to market all the time because they're not trying to be some private investment fund to you know earn fees on the stuff or show the returns to investors. So I don't think if it was a positive to have lower interest rates historically, sure, maybe it was, but they weren't marking this stuff up. They were just writing it at basically the cost they put in uh, unless you get another remark or forced to remark stuff according to gap rules. But now that interest rates are higher, maybe they would mark it down, but we're really not concerned about that. Uh, their focus is the long-term viability of these investments. And what we like is that they are focused on the long-term. They're not really worried if interest rates are up or down uh, in a few quarters when making these long-term investments, whether it be solar, real estate, venture capital, what have you. I suppose it's the cash flows that really matter at the end of the day as well. So <laughs> whatever whatever it looks like the you know private business portfolio is it you can see clearly how much it's actually generating in, in cash flows there. Yeah. yeah. Um I I just say they don't get to collect the cash flows from a lot of the you know minority investments. So like Brett said earlier, you're kind of just taking management at their word around the progress that's going on at these businesses. Fortunately, it's not where they generate plenty of cash from their operating division. So it's, they, they you get some sense of security around that, but uh, on the private investments, you basically just, they're marking it typically at what they invested it in it at. Um, and they don't tend to mark it up. I remember one time they had to mark up their huddle investment and they were almost like upset that they had to do it. Because they like they were like yes they raised another round we had to mark up our investment by whatever fifty percent and they're like don't you know they're trying to explain basically uh, we had to do this we didn't want to do it we, you know so uh, I think you basically just take them at their word and they've been conservative in the past and I think we trust management on that that front okay yeah um, and. Yeah, maybe as we just touched a little bit on cash flow there. Um, so when I was having a look um, at their financial statements, I noticed that the the company's cash flows from operations were um, relatively flat in the ten years between twenty eleven and twenty twenty. There, I mean, there was some oscillation, but it was round about the three hundred million mark, I think, um, across that period, and then. But we saw a pretty substantial increase in in the last couple of years. Um, so I was sort of wondering if you guys could shed some light on what caused that interest um, and whether they're likely to stay at this sort of higher level um, or, or fall back down to what they'd historically been. 
Yeah. So uh, as a lending company, as a company that's just making investments, cash flow is not going to be a relevant metric as opposed to investing in an operating business. So if we look at, for example, uh, below the operating cash flow line over the last six months, they have all these really like a lot of the work is done below that. So they have $400 million of purchases and originations of loans, 467 millions of loans, uh, purchases of loans from a related party, which is just probably the parent company or the bank. Uh, proceeds from loan repayments is uh, $1.4 billion. You have proceeds from sales of uh, available securities, $577 million. Purchases of investments, $140 million. There's a lot of stuff I go on uh, you know, into the financing line as well. So the cash flow is going to be lumpy. It's not really what we focus on here. It's not what they focus on, just given the nature of this business, but what they do focus on and their number one thing, which they have a big table on in every annual letter, which for anyone, the best resource to learn about this company is to look at their annual letters. They go back, uh, I believe, 15 years as they've been public. That's where they give the most disclosures on things or anything that's kind of updated with the business uh, as opposed to on conference calls or earnings releases. They're very standard, you know, just 10Q type stuff when they do their quarterly updates. But they focus on per share book value growth with dividends included. So that's going to help include with the repurchases as well as the dividends that they pay out. They pay a small dividend. So since 2004, that's grown at a, a CAGR of 16.6%, which we think is quite good. And we actually think it's being under, uh, the book value is being underappreciated from a gap perspective because of one, the huddle investment, we think it'd be worth upwards of $500 million or so. And they've only put $83 million into the asset. There's also the tax stuff with the solar business that is depressing book value per share or just book value in general. And then also the allo, they did a weird, can't say I'm an expert on all this stuff, but that when they spun out their aloe uh, fiber holding and they basically have a, I think it's a, I don't know if it's 51, essentially a 50% stake. And the way they're, they're doing something with it that is giving them like the value of it uh, from a stated perspective is going down, even though the business is still growing. So that's hurting book value as well. But despite all these headwinds that they're purposely doing to not pay taxes, the book value per share with the dividends uh, included is growing at 16.6% a year, which we think is phenomenal. I mean, it's not Buffett level at Berkshire, which is 20%, but it's pretty darn close. Okay, yeah. And um, maybe along a similar line, um, is it? They, they laid out I believe in in that same shareholder letter that you're you're referencing there, they also lay out um, how they've deployed their capital. Um, and I noticed that there there has they give you sort of ten years back in in that letter. So I could see that there's been quite a significant kind of ramp up in the last three years. Is that that? I mean, is there any? particular reason for that is they've seen better opportunities in the last three years is that interest rates going up suddenly things are not as expensive things are better holds um what's what's the cause of that i think it's maybe they're seeing more attractive multiples but most of it just has to do with the fact that they have more cash to deploy now so they've uh their operating businesses have grown they all spit off cash and they can use that cash to reallocate and then the loan book kind of the loan book runoff and so we're talking about this this melting ice cube of the big federal ffelp loans um it kind of peaked runoff wise over the last three years and so it's given them a ton of cash flow to basically allocate where they want and so i think that's why you've kind of seen it peak specifically over the last two or three years it's not as we move forward, a greater percentage of those of that cash being deployed is going to be coming from the operating subsidiaries as opposed to the loan book, just because they're they're running out of those legacy loans. And so, um, maybe we won't see it grow quite as much as we saw in the last three years, but it'll be more sustainable. Yeah, and the most significant area. So if we look at 2021 and 2022, they've invested a 1.47 billion total uh, kind of capital deployment. I guess some of it's you know dividends or stock repurchases. So it's not all uh, 
capital investment, but it's just the capital deployment, $1.47 billion in 2021, $1.36 billion in 2022. About half of that each year is into their, what they call the other investments, which I kind of wish they would break out a little bit better, but that's generally venture capital, real estate, and solar. So that's ramped up a ton. And what we like about that is they're not going to go after these opportunities unless it hits their hurdle rate. So the fact that they're putting so much money into this stuff makes us feel like they're finding some great opportunities at the moment, which we hopefully will reap over the next 10 years or and beyond. So while we're, while we're discussing um, capital allocation, maybe you guys could just give a more general approach, yeah, more general picture of they, how do they, obviously recently they've been putting more into uh, venture capital, these other opportunities that they, they see, but I mean, do they, do they, what's their policy on returning capital to shareholders? You mentioned a dividend there, share buybacks. What's how, how do they balance these things? And what do they have any specific sort of threshold and like that, which they determine it's right to do a buyback, it's right to pay a dividend or whatever? They, they do buyback. I, I don't think they have any dividend. If they do, it's really small. Um, but the oh, they do, they do. It yields like one percent, I believe. Okay, uh, the just to play for the listeners. The share count has declined by 2% a year since 2016. And it's it's a little lumpier because part of this part of their capital allocation strategy is it depends on what deals come up, right? So they're gonna be, you know, if they if they find one one quarter where they think they can generate a 20% return and that cross and that's a better return than maybe buying back the stock at the current moment, they're gonna do that. They also there's been times when there'll be a big shareholder that's selling stock. So um, I think, I can't remember the old, one of the co-founders recently passed away, I want to say five years ago, his wife sold a big chunk of stock from what she inherited and the company bought it back from her. And so they'll they'll do it in lumps sometimes. So it's a, it's a bit lumpy. There isn't any sort of predictable buyback strategy, although you know that Historically, if it's below one times book value, I think around that area, they're buying back. So it's a part of the strategy, but they have to weigh it versus their other that their opportunity cost. And um, you think I'm missing anything there, Brett? No, I don't. I don't think so. They generally will only buy it back if at an, uh, aggressively if the shares look very cheap. Uh, I'd say maybe we're getting to that time period because it's kind of a one times book value as we're recording, although shares kind of jump around a little bit because they're not traded uh, too much. But uh, I guess from an ownership perspective, maybe Ryan hit that. They do have a ton of insider ownership. um, And a lot of it is from kind of just people that have been with them for a long time. So you have the founder, you have the CEO, and then you also have some people that have been on the board of directors that are also from from the various areas. They may have given money to them when they're younger uh, or when the business was younger. Don't know the exact backstory there, but there's a lot of insider ownership. So from a share buyback perspective, when they deploy it, they're not able to do it as aggressively as say an Apple or someone with just an extremely liquid stock. Uh, And the downside of that is, okay, you can't take out as many shares because... Let me just pull up maybe how many shares have traded today. Um, today, 5,892 shares and they traded $88. Average 10K, 10 day, 10 day volume is 43,000. So not very much, but the benefit of that I think is you get a little bit of a floor because if it goes down to a certain level, they're going to buy back and hopefully it, 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 I think it makes the stock a little bit less volatile, which may be not be important to everyone, but can help you. You know, some people say that volatility doesn't matter, but it can, it can make it easier to own the stock when you know that, hey, if it gets cheap, they're going to help buy it back for you. And hopefully not, uh, if it goes down 50%, they're going to take advantage. Yeah. And the other thing on the dividend, it was, here, let me pull it up. The dividends paid. It, Steve Butterfield, the old co-founder, used to be very. Um, he used to love his dividends, and it doesn't seem like Mike Dunlap, who's the current chairman, is quite as into the dividends. I, I think it seems he prefers repurchases. So, 
And that's kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't really have a preference over the two. I guess I probably align more with buybacks, but it's been, the focus has been more so on buybacks over the years as opposed to dividends in recent history. Cool. And yeah, and uh, you guys have given the impression that you, you're fairly favorable on management because there's certain things you have to sort of take on, take on trust um, and stuff. But maybe you could just give us an overview of uh, who now that's management team are, who the, who the key players running the company. Yeah. Ryan, do you have maybe, do you have the bios in front of you? I always forget who exactly is what, but all I know is that with Nelnet, uh, one big thing we ask is like, do we trust them? Do we trust management teams? And that's a bigger hurdle than you might think with public companies. And we definitely trust them. So I feel great having them, you know, trusting them with our money, but maybe Ryan, you have more details. Michael Dunlap, I think his official role is chairman. He has been running the company was the co-founder with Steve Butterfield. They started it back in the 2000s. He's a little more hands-off today, but still very involved in the capital allocation side of things. Jeff Nordic is the CEO, kind of runs the day-to-day operations. I think both of them do a solid job. Jeff's been writing the annual letters for the last two years, and then they kind of close it out with Michael Dunlap's thoughts at the end. Um, the, uh, I guess I'll paint a picture like so here's a quote from the 2021 shareholder letter that i think encapsulates management's ideology and how they think about running a public organization so mike dunlap says and this was when a lot of things were trading at ridiculous multiples it was kind of during the nft craze it was when crypto was uh, at significantly higher levels across the board and and dunlap came out and he said as I have stated for more than a decade, it is our goal for each Nelnet shareholder to record a gain or loss in market value proportional to the gain or loss in per share fundamental value recorded by the company. To achieve this goal, we strive to maintain a one-to-one relationship between the company's fundamental value and the market. As that implies, we would rather see Nelnet stock price at a fair level than an artificial level. It's basically saying some some management teams really love to have their stock shoot up and they're very promotional because whether maybe it gives them a bigger bonus, maybe they can use equity to finance things, but that tends to hurt you eventually. It's kind of, it swings both ways where when, when you start to measure yourself by the stock and things go poorly, your employees are frustrated, shareholders are frustrated. Whereas if you just maintain that solid one-to-one relationship, I think it's better over the long term since the fundamental improvement or the fundamental value over time is what's going to affect the stock over the long, long run. So that's Dunlap's approach. He's held that approach for a long time. They've increased per share book value, uh, I want to say 17% annually for 18 years. And so the proof is in the pudding and it's he he talks a, talks a good game, but he also kind of backs it up with a uh, track record. They have a very similar mindset, or they talk, I guess. You have to back up with your actions of Constellation Software and Berkshire Hathaway, which we think is a great company to be in. If you try to learn from two of those, probably the two best-performing conglomerates, or you know, they're not exactly the same of all time. We, we, we like that they have similar mindsets of... We're not trying to just pump up our stock in the short run. It's not everything. You know, it doesn't mean, oh, okay, you have a management team like this, that we should buy this business. But you combine that mindset with the track record, the long-term track record of really growing the value of this business at 17% a year. We like that combination. Kind of a funny story. We went to a Boston Omaha shareholder meeting, I want to say two years ago. and. Yeah, it was two years ago. Anyway, the and actually one of the co-CEOs, I think is the structure at Boston Omaha, is actually on the board now at Nelnet. But when we were there, we were sitting, and it's not that many people in the crowd, but we looked over and we saw Michael Dunlap. I don't think anyone recognized who he was except for us because we were Nelnet shareholders. Um, but he was there just sitting in the crowd for this Boston Omaha shareholder meeting. And afterwards, we kind of came up to him and we're like, we're big fans there. We really love your shareholder letters. And he's just like, how did you hear about us? Like almost as if he didn't want to be public. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you know who I am? 
Um, but it's just kind of this very conservative run the business for the long term, find attractive returns and and be careful with your capital and and that's kind of the approach from management that we like and that's really seems to be their whole mo it's quite often something you see um with i wouldn't necessarily call this a family business but ones we have high insider ownership they they mainly just care about <laughs> maximizing the, the value internally they don't really um care so much about what people what people think about them do they, do they? but um uh, yeah i've seen the same thing with with family-run businesses in the UK and stuff. And there is just, so Dunlap, I don't know if this has played a role in him kind of stepping away from the day-to-day, but he had a health scare, I think, over the last year or so. Um, His son is on the board, I believe. Uh, I don't know what his role will be. I think he has a role at the company right now, but he could potentially end up being an important figure down the road. So probably someone worth just kind of keeping an eye on and seeing if there's any way to track his performance. And if we ever get any commentary from him, it, it there could be, it, like you said, it's, it's a family business in some ways. And, you know, there might be a point when he's has a more important role at the company. Yeah. He's fairly young. So it might not be for a decade or something like that, but he's at the company now and maybe he is being primed as a successor, but I don't, it's a TBD there. It's obviously something to watch. The big concern with conglomerates like this is, okay, what happens when Buffett leaves? Okay, what happens with, why am I blinking? Mark Leonard leaves at Constellation Software. That's going to be a big question. We like that Nordic is here now. Um, he seems to be running the show and doing a great job. He's a little bit younger and he might be there for, you know, hopefully at least a decade or maybe even longer. But obviously one of the biggest concerns when owning a capital allocation style business is the succession planning. Cool. And um, maybe then I'll be a good time to shift to how you guys go about valuing the company and um, and what you sort of think shareholder returns could be from the, from the current price. Yeah, there's so many ways to go about it with them because they have what, how many have we listed here? Six or seven major operating businesses. But I like to think about it, maybe Ryan can give some different context of basically how... S- what the market is valuing this business at today, which let me just pull up the current market cap, let's say 3.3 billion. And it's right around book value. And we think that book value is depressed. So that gives us a margin of safety there. But they should have coming in, if you combine all the units over the next five years or so, it's hard to to put an exact projection on it, but let's say $2 billion in total that they can redeploy maybe one and a half if things go a little bit poorly. So they're valued at $3.3 billion. They're going to get like $2 billion coming in that they could if they really wanted to just return to shareholders. But we think they can reinvest that and earn a 17% return-ish, give or take, given their track record, maybe even higher, maybe a little lower. And if, if they do that, like, look, and then if you even make it more simple, they're trading at book value per share. It's depressed. And they've grown book value per share, including the dividend payout at 16.6% a year since 2004. I don't, I wouldn't be upset with those returns going forward. And given the size of this business is fairly small, I think that there's a long runway for them to keep doing this. But maybe Ryan, I don't know, is there any other way? We, we go about it a couple different ways, but any other context there? I think for me, I kind of like just taking just get into the enterprise value. So taking the market cap, stripping out the cash that they have, which is uh, they they tend to redeploy pretty quickly and they generate consistent cash flow out of their operating businesses. So they they tend to operate pretty lean in terms of just pure cash on the balance sheet. So they had 100 million, 118 million in cash, I think as of the latest quarter, um, maybe that was Q4. But And then they, like we said, we think they mark their investments pretty conservatively. They They try to mark them at whatever they paid and we think they generate good returns so we just strip out the cash and investments or i do which if you strip that away from the market cap on this business it leaves a billion one billion dollar enterprise value 
billion dollar enterprise value, there are two operating businesses, the loan servicing and the business services, which is the education software and the loan servicing. I think those can generate probably $150 million in operating income. It's at, I think, around 130 in 2022, but- Maybe more. Could be this year million plus soon, shortly. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say this year, probably $150 million in operating income. So on an EV to operating income, it's probably- I guess mental math here is six to seven times. I'm getting somewhere in there. For, and those businesses are growing. I mean, operating income at, or at least the business services segment is operating income there has grown at 13% a year since 2016. You're paying six or seven times for solid growth on, on those operating businesses. And you're basically paying a reasonable price for management's capital allocation skills. Great. Yeah. I think that uh, gives a couple of good angles to look at it from. Um, what do you guys think, maybe just to sort of uh, round off here, we should we should talk about the risks. So what do you guys think the principal risks are for an investment in Net right now? We talked about management. So things change there. Right. That could be a risk. Interest rates are definitely a risk because of the spread that they earn on a loan book, although that's a decreasing risk over time. Besides that, given how diversified this business is, the biggest risk is, well, okay, okay. Actually, the number one risk is that they the government decides to end, do the student loan forgiveness thing, and they tell, for some reason, would tell all the lenders to basically screw off that they're going to just have to write those down, right? That seems extremely unlikely because generally the government would make do there. They're not, it's the US government. They're going to honor their contracts. So that's a big one. I guess a headwind kind of could be presented if the student loans go away uh, in the United States. That could be a headwind. But given how diversified these businesses are, I would be mainly concerned just about future capital allocation because they're not really redistributing everything, redistributing everything to you. They're reinvesting in these new projects, and it's unclear whether they're going to be successful. We think their track record is really strong, but it doesn't guarantee that's going to be good in the future. So the biggest risk, again, it's vague, is future capital allocation. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to pinpoint. I mean, you could point your finger at certain risks for every segment within Nelnet's complex. So, you know, with the business services, there could be some competitor that comes along that kind of disrupts one or two of the segments in, in the education software space. Uh, on the loan servicing side, you know, there's obviously always risk when 70% of your revenue comes from one customer. Uh, on the loans portfolio, maybe that interest spread tightens if rates rise quickly. If, uh, I don't know, you, you, every single one, you could like highlight individual risk, but I think when you look at it as a whole, it's pretty diverse. So it's hard to take any one of those and say that's like a huge risk to the overall business. I think like Brett said, if Dunlap's gone or we, we haven't maybe been able to see Nordics, who's the current CEO, we haven't really seen his track record be established yet. Like I think he's done a pretty good job and he writes a good letter, but he hasn't been, he's maybe not as eloquent as Dunlap, but still it's like... He, yeah. Oh, if he can't he's write a good letter, he's, he's an operator. Bad investor. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's an operator yeah, who runs it. a good business. Yeah, but, we're going to be going in there with and seeing if uh, if there's any spelling errors, and if there are, then man, we're selling. But no, no. yeah, it's, he uh, he doesn't have as long of a track record. Yeah, so I guess just management is the only risk. I think it, you could say the same thing about Constellation Software or Berkshire, and any situation where you're. You know, if, if it's a capital allocation business, who's allocating the capital is obviously very important. And uh, in this case, it's it's the same. Excellent. Um, I think that's pretty much all the questions I had. Is there anything else you guys think uh, we should have mentioned um, to, to give people a good idea of the overall picture of Nelnet as an investment? 
I don't think so, but there are a lot of moving parts here. So I would say we'll send over links to our Substack write-up that went along with the podcast we did on Nelnet and then a link to the, the podcast itself on Nelnet. So any listeners can check that out for more information because we go through good coverage on that as well there. And I think that could cover anything that we maybe missed today. Yeah. The only thing I'd add is if you open, if you're interested in investing and you look at the 10K first, it's going to be messy. It's going to be a little intimidating. You see this huge liabilities side of things because of the loans and it kind of concerns you. Start with the shareholder letters because it's all a little more digestible after that and everything starts to make sense. So it's it, it's a little bit of a messy financial picture, um, but I, I say read the shareholder letters and I think you'll get a sense of what a lot of the numbers mean throughout the balance sheet and uh, and the cash flow statement. And they're only about 16 pages or something that so I did read last year. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, but they go through all the they go through all the operating businesses and some of their minority investments too, which the minority investments you really don't get any color on throughout the year. So that's kind of the only thing, only way to track those. All right. Um, maybe we just end then by you guys uh telling listeners where they can go to find out more about chit chat money, harsh capital, any of the other resources you want to share. Yeah, I mean chit chat money, Spotify, Apple, or YouTube. And then along with it, a great way to get the distribution for the podcast is our free Substack that we do show notes uh for various episodes, which will just be chit chat money on Substack. So I'd say those four sources. Uh, unless Ryan, you have anything else for them to yeah i'd say those four places are the best if you want just consistent you know we post everything everywhere at least as much as possible so spotify apple youtube and substack all right thank you both for coming on and uh thanks everyone for listening thank you for having us